I'm so excited to be working with you guys this morning, to hang with you, and uh, feel free, uh, raise your hand, go to the bathroom, whatever you got to do, it's fine with me. Um, I actually, when you're quiet, I get nervous. <laughs> when kids are quiet, it's, it's reason to get nervous. Um, but uh, I'm excited to be here this morning. Um, I, I feel like I got a word from God to, to share with you guys. See, we are continuing our, in our series on what Jesus said. Um, there's a lot of great words in Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. We understand that. But especially the words of Jesus. Those words carry some weight, and we're going to examine those this morning. Jesus told us that his words are spirit in life. So I'm believing this morning that we're going to receive something that is spiritual and life-giving. Amen? Amen? A couple weeks ago, Pastor Otis was in a meeting with us, and I believe he said the same thing here on a Sunday morning. He said to us that he felt that God was moving us from an observational church to an influential church. And that really resonated with me, and actually it put words around what I felt God was doing. When he said that, I knew immediately that That was what today's message was all about. It was preparing us for this purpose. God is preparing us to move from an observational church to an influential church. An observational church observes. They stand at a distance and they look around at what's happening around them. And they're just left to make judgments. Um, Oh, you know, I really hope that works over there. Ooh, I hope that doesn't go south over there. The best thing an observational church can do is hope for the best and, and pray. And I feel like that's one of the things that we've done. We, we've prayed and we've done what we could do. Now, the worst thing an observational church can do is, while they're observing, become judgmental. I can't believe they're doing that. Who do they think they are? Did you see what she was wearing? Now, I will say there is something easy about being an observational church. It's safe. We get to surround ourselves with people who think like us and share our similar observations. However, on the flip side, if we want to be an influential church, then that means we're going to go right into the middle of our community, into the schools, into the business, into the government offices, and into the middle of everybody's daily messy lives. And then we will provide a picture of them, a picture of love and a light that pushes them closer to the path that leads to life. An influential church, however, cannot be the work of the pastors alone. The pastoral staff can't be in all of those places. Being a church that has influence requires hundreds of people's giftings and callings to be in hundreds of different sectors in our community so that we together can provide um, a a living example of what it looks like to live that irresistible life that Jesus promises. Now look at your neighbor and say, I think he's talking about you. And you're right, I am. If we're going to move from an observational church that has, um, to an influential church that has pull in our community, then we're going to have to make some commitments. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this moment. 
We thank you for your grace that we could be called children of God, that we could stand in your house and have ears to hear what you are saying. I pray that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we would, first of all, know you better than we've ever known you before. And I pray that you open up the eyes of our hearts so that we can see ourselves in the same light that you see us. We ask this in Jesus' name. In all Calvary kids, oh, wait a minute, that's not you. And everybody said... Amen. Now, before we look at some of Jesus's most influential statements, I want to—I like to preface it with a with an understanding of how God wants us to grow within them. There's an amazing verse for me that's in first, it's Second Peter chapter three, verse eighteen, and it says this: "But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ." This very simple verse has been very influential in my life. We are told to grow in two areas to grow in knowledge and grace. Now this word grace, as many of you know, is an amazing word. But when we look at the full definition, it actually changes how we see who God is and how we see ourselves. When you look at the whole definition of grace, which is charis in the Greek, you get the picture not just of God's favor on your life, but you see his favor is inclined towards you. Or more accurately, He is actively leaning towards you with everything that you need for that moment you're in. And so I get this picture of of somebody standing kind of like this, and God is, is behind them reaching down from heaven with the thing that they need in that moment. And to grow in grace as a church, what we do is we simply turn and receive what we need. And when we do that, we grow in that grace. Now, the second thing that we're to grow in is knowledge. And the Greek word here is agnosis. And it begins with knowing, like learning and and head knowledge. But then it quickly moves to an experiential knowledge, a, a functional knowledge that's gleaned from firsthand personal experience. If you're not a mechanic, it's the difference between you watching a YouTube video and you taking your car to a 30-year veteran mechanic. There's knowledge that, that is experiential, that is gleaned over time of doing. And so here's the picture. We open up God's word, and in 2 Peter chapter 1, it says, we have been given everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him. So what we do is we open up God's word. And we read what he says about us, about who we are, or about what we are to do. And then immediately, as we read that, God actively reaches down from heaven to give us the grace to experience what we just read. That's so good. Because we need to grow in that experience. We need to grow in that grace. And so this morning, we're looking at what Jesus said, and I hope together that we can grow in the grace and knowledge that God is making available to us today. When I think about our community, I see a lot of neat change that needs to take place. But I sometimes wonder if I'm seeing everything correctly. So I think a better question is, when Jesus looks at our community, what does he see? To understand God's call on us personally, or maybe the million-dollar question, why am I here in Citrus County? 
to truly grasp why um, we need to see our community the same way that Jesus does. And this will help us. And, and Jesus gives us three very simple statements that shows us exactly how he sees our community and what we are to do in this time. The first words of Jesus' statement is found in Luke chapter 19. It's a famous story. The hero of the story is obviously Jesus. And if there was a villain in our story, his name is Zacchaeus. The hero comes into town. The whole town comes to see him crowding the street. And the villain is hiding up in a tree. And as the hero reaches the point where the villain is hiding out, he stops. The crowd grows silent, waiting for the hammer to fall. And to the crowd's horror, The hero invites himself to the villain's house for dinner. So they go to the house. We're not told what happens within the house, but we are seeing what happens afterwards. Zacchaeus, the villain, comes out and says, look, Lord, I'm selling half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've stolen anything, which I probably did, I'm going to return it four times as much to whoever I stole it from. And to this, Jesus says, surely salvation has come to this house. And then he says something very powerful. He says, the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus came, I came to save that which was lost. When Jesus looked at Zacchaeus, the notorious dirtbag, and saw value in him, it upset everyone. The religious of Zacchaeus' day only saw his poor choices and lack of morality. But what Jesus saw was who he was created to be. Jesus' influence on Zacchaeus' life began with a simple desire to show love and a genuine interest to a total stranger. Jesus' influence resulted in Zacchaeus ultimately seeing what Jesus saw in him, a new and different identity. When Jesus came and said, I seek to save the lost, he wasn't just referring to the man Zacchaeus, but more specifically, he was referring to the relationship God had intended to have with all mankind, the relationship that was lost when sin entered the world. Now, to see the extent of what was lost, we got to go back to the moment it was lost. So just after the serpent had twisted God's word and twisted Adam and Eve's mind, we read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate as well. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you you were naked? Three things were lost that day. Three things that God is actively leaning towards us with the grace to strengthen in our own lives. The first thing Adam and Eve lost was their identity. In Genesis 3, 7, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They lost their identity because they forgot who they were. And if you ever find yourself in a moment where you don't know who you are or why you're here, then we tend to do what Adam and Eve did. We look around. That looks good. 
that looks like that will work. And we clothe ourselves with the things of this world, and that which clothes you eventually defines you. We also know they lost their identity, not only because they saw themselves differently, but also because of what God said. When Adam told God he was naked, God responded with, who told you you were naked? Now, personally, I hear the parent tone in this statement. Who? Who told you you were naked? I am your father. I am the one who tells you what you are. But unfortunately, what they needed in that moment had been lost. Because what had been lost was their ability to understand who God said they were. So for the first time, they were left on their own to define themselves and to define their own purposes. Basically, they were making it up as they went along. And this is our origin story. Do you know what it's like when the human race is left on their own to make up their own purposes and define themselves? It's an evolution of confusion, chaos, and pain. And this is exactly what we see when we look into our history books, and this is exactly what Jesus saw, which is why he said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. So that means today, tomorrow, and the rest of your life, there is a grace for us to know who we are. God is leaning towards us with the ability to understand who he says we are. Like Zacchaeus, we need to have a type of encounter that changes um, our view of ourselves. Grace and truth gave him a chance to be somebody new. Grace and truth can do the same for us. The second thing they lost that day was their intimacy with God. Verse 8 says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Prior to everything getting lost, they knew God in a special way. They knew him as a father, as a, as a teacher, as a mentor, as a friend, someone they could lean on and trust. But after they ate the fruit... Everything was lost. Once they ate the fruit and realized something was wrong, instead of running to God, they ran from God. They ran because they were afraid. The shame they felt produced a fear, fear of what God might do, fear of what God might say. And in that moment, they lost their intimacy with God. Intimacy is a word we usually use to describe a marriage, not because of its technical meaning, but more of what it implies. In an intimate relationship, there is a joy and a trust and a happiness. Communication comes easy in an intimate relationship because there's a love, a trust, a camaraderie, and a bond. In an intimate relationship is a growing relationship. Let me ask you this. What would happen if you took communication out of an intimate relationship? Everything would fall apart pretty quickly, wouldn't it? Communication is the foundation of a relationship, or at least it's the glue that holds it all together, right? In the garden, Adam and Eve lost the ability to communicate with God, not talk with God because they were talking, but they were not communicating. And as a result, we are all born into this world as strangers to God. But Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. So today, tomorrow, and the rest of our lives, there is a divine favor on us to communicate with God. To become a church of influence in our community, we have to have a growing, a growth in this grace of communication and what we like to call prayer. 
We see God's desire for our prayer life in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. It says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. God wants us to come with confidence. He actually wants us to enjoy the communication process. And he also wants to give us something so that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. If we don't communicate with God on the regular, if we don't pray regularly, then our relationship with God cannot be what it could be, meaning it will not grow and deepen over time. And without spiritual growth, we limit our ability to push back the darkness all around us. Prayer empowers our influence. One more thing that was lost in the garden that Jesus came to restore was Adam and Eve's influence. They were given influence over the land. They were to care for and govern the land. They were given authority. They were, their job was to bring life to and draw life from their world. But of course, that became difficult after the fall. Their sense of purpose had been lost. Their sense of influence was lost. However, Matthew 28 God restores this purpose for us. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. That authority that was lost actually was given to us. And our role is now to bring life to our world and to draw life from our world. But how do we do that? How do we bring change to a world that is so different from us, so contrary to what we believe we actually see Jesus demonstrate this very thing in Mark chapter 2, verse 15. It says, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teacher of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Here, we get another glimpse into Jesus' perspective on why he came. We saw the power of this perspective in Zacchaeus' story, and here we see it again. Jesus is saying, I see their choices, and that's not going to scare me off or make me hide the light of truth I'm trying to extend. I see past the choices they're making into who they are called to become. So when it comes to seeing the sin in other people's lives, we are not to stand back and observe. We are to step in and show God's love and live God's truth as a means to provide influence. But in order for us to offer a hope to a sinful world, we ourselves must illustrate freedom from sin that Christ came to give us. In other words, before we can make disciples, we have to be disciples. I love the fact that Jesus is very open about his purpose in Mark Mark 2. Imagine the moment. It's a full house, a bunch of loud people. Jesus is right in the middle of them. The Pharisees come into the house, but but not too far because they don't become unclean. So they call the disciples, come here. Why is he eating with the sinners? And upon hearing this, notice what Jesus does not do. He does not excuse himself from the party and step outside for a private talk with the Pharisees. Excuse me. Listen, guys, it's, it's not the healthy that need a doctor. It's the sick. It's not the righteous I came to call, but the sinner. 
No, that's not what Jesus did. Jesus was very open about why he came. He was very open, and as a matter of fact about it, he said it in front of everybody. I really would have liked to have seen the guys right next to him. Did he just call us sinner? But that's exactly what he did. When it comes to seeing the sin in our own lives, we need to understand that Jesus was not and will never be put off by our sin. We need to understand how Jesus sees our sin. He sees it as a sickness that he came to heal and deliver from. Adam and Eve saw their their sin as a reason to run from God. But if we're going to be a church that's influential, we need to allow our sin to be a reason to run to God. If we're honest... We can all recognize that there is still some sin that continues to plague us and hinder what God wants to do in our lives. So in this statement, Jesus makes it clear that one of the main reasons he came was to deal with the problem of sin in our lives. Jesus came to deal with the sickness, and since that's why he came, we shouldn't be ashamed of the fact that there's sin in our lives. Our sin should drive us closer to Christ. Scripture declares that Jesus came to deal with sin. However... He can only deal with the sin that we bring to him. You see, we play a major role in the cleansing of sin. And I think this is an area that an influential church should become serious about. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus liked himself to a physician. A physician's sole purpose is to help those who are sick. Over the last few years, I've had a chance to visit a few physicians. I don't know about you, but... When I find myself chatting with a doctor, I find I'm getting very descriptive and blunt about what's going on. And the reason I don't mind having these awkward conversations with a stranger and their nurse is because I'm there for a very specific purpose. I'm either there because I'm experiencing some type of sickness or I'm experiencing a potential problem that could be pointing to something bigger. I'm there to sort things out. And I think this is a healthy perspective for us to have in relation to our sin and our great physician, Jesus. As I mentioned before, we play a major role in the cleansing of sin. The book of Revelation paints a clear picture of our role. Revelation 19.7 says, For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of a reverence for God. James 4, 8, come near to God and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. We are to be the driving force behind the cleansing of sin. Now, make no mistake, Jesus is the one that cleanses us from sin, but it begins with our willingness to be cleansed. And one of the greatest cleansing agents of sin, which, by the way, is completely up to us, is found in 1 John 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's important that we understand our role in the rooting out of sin because while we're doing our part, God is busy doing his part. In Philippians chapter 2, we read verse 12, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to fulfill his good purpose. We're to work some things out while God works some things in. What is he working in? Well, Romans 8, verse 29 gives us a really good picture. 
It says, for God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son. While we're working out our salvation by confessing and allowing the great physician to cleanse us, God is at work in us, making us look and act more like his son, Jesus. This is called the process of sanctification. It's the most glorious and merciful thing God could ever do for us. But at the same time, it is probably one of the most difficult and trying and personal processes we will ever experience, which is why I'm bringing it up today. If we're going to be the light of our world and salt to our community, we've got to be committed to this process. You see, if God wants us to look like his son, he's going to want to fill us with things like love. And if we're going to love our neighbor like God wants us to, then we need to get rid of some of that selfishness, some of that prejudice, some of that greed, some of that pride, and make room for God's love. God wants to fill us with courage and confidence so we can do the things he's called us to do, like witness, serve. Or simply believe him to do the impossible. But in order for that to happen, we've got to deal with any fear, doubt, or insecurities. I think scripture makes it very clear that our role is in this process. We are to be the initiators of the cleansing. God is the initiator of the filling. And finally this morning, Jesus understands the challenges and the difficulties that are inherent in this process of sanctification. So he tells us one more thing that not only defined his reason for coming, but also gives us, who are in the middle of the process, much-needed hope and direction. In John 10, verse 10, Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I believe Jesus said this so that it would give us direction. Have you ever wondered what God wants you to do? I believe this verse gives us a very clear trajectory. See, many times in the New Testament, our faith journey is likened to a race. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, we are challenged to run this race in such a way as to get the prize. And Jesus is showing us what the prize is. He is showing us what he came for us to win. With this one statement, Jesus opens the door and gives the grace to run after every promise in Scripture. He gives us permission to expect him to move the obstacles in our way. I'm so glad Jesus made this statement because it gives me permission to long for more, permission to hope, permission to even dream of what God wants to do. Because here's something you might not know about me. my, My perspective on life tends to be I don't know, I I see the glass as half empty many times. I tend to be more on the pessimistic side of life. I guess I'm kind of a weird hybrid because I don't don't mind trying new things. I like big challenges, and um, and I don't mind shooting for the stars. And by God's grace, I've experienced some great victories, but I'm a guy. And all that go-get-it attitude usually revolves around a project or an event. But when it comes to my overall attitude towards life, I tend to see the glass as half empty more often than not. I can hope for the best, but in the back of my mind and in my heart, I am well prepared for the worst. And if you're like me and you spend more mental energy getting ready for the worst, it can be easy to lose sight of where God is leading us. 
And this is why I'm so grateful Jesus made one of his biggest reasons for coming so clear and simple. He did it because he knew we would have trouble. He knew there would be difficult days where our hope was challenged, where our, even our faith in him would waver. And on those days, in that trouble, we don't need anything long and complicated. We just need what he gave us, a simple statement that carries great weight. He's saying, I came to give you life. I came to get you through this moment. I came to show you a better direction. I think he also didn't want us to miss it. Because this is one of the most important statements in the New Testament. This statement speaks to God's forgiveness, his love, and his faithfulness. This verse illustrates so powerfully how much God is for us. When he thinks about you, his goal, his hope is for an abundant life. We have to keep this reality in front of us. We have to value this God-given life, first of all, because Jesus died that we could have it. If it was that important to him, then it needs to be that important to us. And since it was that important to him, there is definitely a grace from God for us to experience what Jesus died to give us. Secondly, we must value this God-given life because this is the hope that we have to offer to our community. We are living testimonies of God's grace and truth. And as we commit to the process of cleansing out the sin in our own lives, we become more understanding and merciful. And as God continues to conform us more into the image of his son, our families and our communities will begin to see the value of following Jesus. You know, the kingdom of God, it's not advanced just from pulpits and stages. It's built brick by brick by those who labor daily in the harvest field. The influence of the church is actually a combined influence of each one of our lives. I want to finish up this morning by reading Hebrews chapter 12, and then we'll pray. It says, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Our race has been marked out for us by God, and he's calling us to move from an observer to an influencer, and the best way to do that is to be influenced by God's grace that is being extended to us every single day. Jesus came to save that which was lost, so let's commit to discover um, what God says about us, and let's create a habit of approaching God's throne of grace with confidence. Jesus came to call the sinner with, great, with the great physician, let us throw off that sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance through the process towards the abundant life Jesus made possible.